So we have three readings today. You've got uh, Deuteronomy 30, which is 15 to 19. See, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, and to keep his commands, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you are not obedient, and if you are drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You will not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. This day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Second reading is Luke 6. Forty-three to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognised by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Final reading is Luke 10. (coughs) Sorry, Romans, Romans 10. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart that is, the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, 
and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word, word of the Lord. Well, you're probably familiar with uh, uh, funny quips that describe how the world can variously be described, uh, divided into two types of people. For example, uh, you know, uh, there are two types of people. There are those who love to talk and those who hate to listen, which is probably all of you. Uh, there are those who do all the work and those who take all the credit. Um, there are those who appreciate music and then there's those who play ukulele. Um, <laughs> At the shopping mall, there are two types of people, those who love shopping and those who just want to go home, and the problem is they're usually married to each other. Um, and even there are two types of people in this world, those who divide the world into two types of people and those who don't. And we could go on. There's no end uh, of imaginative ways we could go about this. Well, as we come to the conclusion of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain in Luke 6, uh, we're given two pictures here, on, on one hand an image and a story. And both the image and the story divide the world into two types of people. There are people who produce good fruit and people who produce bad fruit. There are people who build houses on solid foundations and those who don't. Now when I was learning to write essays and, and preach sermons, I was taught that the purpose of a good conclusion is to uh, bring focus back to your presentation, to gather everything you've said back to the main point you've been making all along. And that's what this conclusion does. Jesus' image and his story don't actually introduce new material for us to think about today. They consolidate everything that we've been hearing over the last four weeks. And even the division of things into two contrasting groups is not new. That's a, that's a technique Jesus has been using the whole way through. Blessing versus woe. Material prosperity versus material deprivation. We had loving enemies versus seeking retribution. We had loving without expectation of return versus um, reciprocal favours amongst friends. Not being judged and not judging. Being generous, experiencing generosity. We had blind leaders and blind followers we had blind helpers and blind sufferers. So there's no surprise here in finding the world divided into two groups of people. But let's explore these pictures, and I want to begin first with the metaphor of two trees that we find in verses 43 and 45. And the essence of this metaphor is, if you want a nice, ripe, firm apple to eat, you need to find an apple tree you won't find a fresh apple on a thorn bush. And in fact, it doesn't matter how many fresh, firm apples you sticky tape onto a thorn bush, that bush will never produce anything other than thorns. Not one single apple. As the tree, so the fruit. 
And so, in fact, there are only two types of trees in this world. Apple trees and trees that don't grow apples. The story of the two builders in verses 46 to 49 is a little different. Now, we're mostly familiar with this story in the form we find it in Matthew's Gospel, uh, where it is about a wise builder who built his house on a rock and a foolish builder who built his house on the sand. In fact, the Greek word used to describe the uh, foolish builder ends up in English as the noun moron. So, in the Sermon on the Mount, there are two types of people, those who build their houses on rocks and morons. But we need to set this picture of rocks and sand and wise builders and morons to one side because the story as we have it in the sermon in Luke's Gospel is subtly different. It doesn't focus on the character of the builders but upon the work that they do. So the first builder doesn't just build on a rock. We're told this guy digs. He goes down deep. He lays a foundation on the rock. There's effort involved here. There's a process going on. The second builder bypasses proper council bylaws and simply plonks his house on the ground. He can't be bothered with the process that's involved. Now, as one commentator explains, um, at the, the time of the year to build a house in Palestine, probably like Western Australia, is in the summer when it's not raining. There's various reasons for that. Uh, if you're building with mud bricks or you're making mud mortar, um, that doesn't get very far if it's raining. But the problem of a building in summer is that it's hot and the ground there is mostly clay. So by midsummer, it's been baked hard and good. So the second builder has come along, tested the ground with his foot, and reckons oh, that's probably hard enough. Why bother breaking your back and working up a sweat trying to crack through that lot to get to a rock? Near enough is good enough. But of course, in winter, when the rains come, the clay turns into mud, and that second guy no longer has any foundation under his house. So the guy who busted his butt to dig, go down deep, lay a foundation on the rock, is going to be happily sitting inside with a hot cup of tea while the second guy is watching everything he owns being washed away down the gully. Now, the important thing is both houses would have looked the same outwardly. But in the end, it doesn't really matter how many expensive German appliances the second guy put into his kitchen or how pretty the handmade Italian tiles were in his bathroom, without a foundation, they become worthless. So there are two kinds of people in this world, those who put proper foundations under their houses and those whose insurance policy won't be paying out. So as a conclusion to the Sermon on the Plain, how does this picture and this story now gather up everything we've been looking at and everything that Jesus has been preaching to this point? Uh, because apple trees and thorn bushes makes for a kind of amusing story and an uh, entertaining kid's story maybe. But in fact, the subject of this story, uh, this picture, is deadly serious. One of the themes of the Sermon on the Plain has been moral character. Now, we commonly misconceive both the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain as lectures in Christian 
ethics. In other words, do this and don't do that. And, you know, to be sure, as we're going to see, um, obedient action is being called for, but Jesus is preaching something much larger here, not simply telling us what disciples do, but why they are to do it and how they are to do it. There's actually two main blocks of commands that we examined in the Sermon on the Plain. The first was, love your enemies. So instead of seeking retribution, uh, love those who hate you and mistreat you. We learnt the reason for this command, that we do this because this is how God loved us. We once were enemies, and then God reconciled us to make us his children. We looked at the second block of commands last week, and that involved doing justice. And again, we discovered that not only are we too blind to judge others correctly, but we learnt the real way of Christian discipleship is about the practice of compassion. And again, the reason for that was be compassionate as your Father is compassionate. These two verses, verse 35, love your enemies and you will be children of the Most High, and verse 36, be compassionate as your Father is compassionate, are structurally at the centre of the sermon. They're roughly in the halfway mark in terms of just sheer numbers of words, but they're the hinge between what Jesus says in the first half and what he says in the second half of the sermon. They are the focal point. And importantly, these are the only two occasions where God is mentioned at all in the sermon. Apart from the designation Kingdom of God in the, in the first beatitude, this is the only time Jesus mentions God at all. So that places God's character functionally at the centre of Jesus' preaching here. So the Christian disciple does what she or he does because it properly reflects God's character. And that would be important because the Christian disciple is properly a child of God. Because in both of these statements, verse 35 and verse 36, God is related to us as Father. So whatever else maturing Christian discipleship is, it is fundamentally about growing up in the likeness of your father, bearing his image, representing him properly. Only apple trees produce apples. So there's no command here to Christian doing that doesn't first presume the fact of Christian being. You cannot make Christians by sticky-taping apples onto them. That will not cause them to produce one single fresh, ripe apple of their own. If you want apples, you must first make apple trees. The good person brings good out of the good storeroom of their heart, is how Jesus phrases it. And here's the real genius of the Christian gospel, which sets it apart from every other religion or philosophy, at least as far as I know it, and I'm, I'm ready to be corrected, but it stands upon the supernatural transformation of the human heart. It is not a system of ethics, although it's full of ethics. It's not a program for self-realisation and self-improvement, although I really don't know anywhere else where people can go to be so improved and get so profoundly in touch with their real self. 
It's not even a program of social justice, although the gospel has and it will continue to transform societies for the better. But the kingdom of God is about the transforming rule of God that is making a new creation and saves and heals people and makes them fit for that new creation. God is in the business of turning thorn bushes into apple trees. So while Luke's gospel is his first volume all about Jesus, his companion volume, his second book, the book of Acts, is all about Jesus in the church. And it really is all about the coming of the Holy Spirit who doesn't leave people unchanged but transforms them. The early church produced apples in abundance because they had been changed. They had become apple trees. Now, to be sure, we read about people who still got spots on their leaves and got leaf curl and had limbs that withered and dropped off and sometimes grew as very stunted and poorly productive apple trees. We, We read of people who don't instantly become apple trees but like apple trees start small and grow gradually and take a lot of time to produce fresh ripe apples, but they were unmistakably apple trees. What Jesus is preaching here in Luke 6 totally contradicts the spirit of the age in which we live that wants to preach that people are, well, they're, they're a comprehensible mix of bad and good, mostly good, depending on genetics and environment. So we've all been taught that the way you improve people uh, is through better parenting, which usually means more informed parenting, uh, through good education, through proper diet and exercise, through the right therapist and the right medication. This is how you make people good. Effectively, we've been taught you can actually stick apples on a few branches. Think positively. Visualise yourself as an apple tree. But the Gospel says... No, you cannot produce apples that way. People are not intrinsically good. The Apostle Paul insists quite stridently in Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not even something he made up. He gets that from the Old Testament. So when Jesus talks about good people producing good, he's not using our culture standard of measurement which is based on what humans feel to be right or logically deduced to be right or just commonly agree must be right, Jesus' standard for measuring good is altogether different and it's based in the moral character of God. The Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. That means humans are good only to the extent that they bear God's image as people created in his image. People are good to the extent that they actually live under God's rule in obedient trust, in faith. People are good to the extent that they're correctly related to God in the way that he designed us to be. And Jesus is quite emphatic about this standard of good. He doesn't mince his words in verse 45 because he doesn't say a good person, or as my NIV says, good people in general, he pointedly says, the good person, meaning he has a very specific view or standard of what constitutes good 
as far as people are concerned. And in the same way, although I can't render it into English as easily, the good which a good person brings out of the storeroom of their heart is emphatically good. Not just good in any old way you please. So the world is divided into two types of people. People who are good, according to the standards set by Jesus, and everybody else, who then by definition are evil. People don't want to hear this. In the ears of the secular world, this is deadly heresy, because in the secular world, we presume that there's a kind of good that can exist in willful ignorance or willful disobedience of God. The secular world confuses nice people and well-behaved people with good people. The society we live in doesn't really have a vocabulary for distinguishing between what we commonly understand to be good and what God understands to be good, but the two are not the same. And once again, sin has made us blind. And the issue Jesus brings us back to, once again, is the human heart. Now, we started with the human heart back in, um, in uh, week one, um, and uh, you might recall that I made you listen very patiently while I explained the understanding, the ancient understanding of the human heart as the centre of the human. What we would now think of as the function of the brain or the mind um, is understood in the Bible as the heart. The heart was where you process all those experiences that you have of the world. It's the centre of uh, putting them together and understanding what you experience. And it's the centre of your response, of the deliberations and choices you make between good and bad, and, and the centre of your affections and commitments, and therefore the centre out of which you act and have purpose. The heart is the uh, intimate and private centre of your being. And that means what you do is functionally a result of your heart. And therefore the quality of your actions and behaviour stems from the quality of your heart. The good person produces good from a good heart. And likewise the evil person, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. The Bible takes the heart seriously, from Moses pleading with Israel to circumcise their hearts through to God's promise that he will come and circumcise their hearts to Jesus' teaching, which regularly involves him talking about the heart when he talks about human behaviour, through to the apostles who write much about the heart as the place where the Holy Spirit is at work. In the Gospel, you cannot do anything you cannot possibly obey unless your heart has been made good. There are only two kinds of people in this world. And they're not progressives versus conservatives. They're not even liberals versus evangelicals. There are only two kinds of people in this world, apple trees and those that don't produce apples. That brings us back to Jesus' story now about builders and foundations. Well, the guy who took time to dig down, go deep, lay a foundation uh, on the bedrock is a simile for the person who comes to Jesus, hears his word and does them. Verse 47. 
as the conclusion to the Sermon on the Plain. This actually echoes what we read back in the introduction, back in uh, verses 17 to 18, where we heard a large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from Tyre and Sidon who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. There are three important verbs in this introduction. Come, hear, and be healed. And they find an echo in the conclusion, come, hear, and do. These are verbs all arranged around Jesus. It is to Jesus we come. It is his words to which we must pay attention. Um, His healing we must have. And to him we must respond in obedience. See, we too quickly jump to the word do in the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount as if obedience to command is the centre of Jesus' teaching. And that means as if our response to Jesus is at the centre. But what we discover in this story is Jesus is the centre of what's going on here. Our response is secondary. Our our response is apples from apple trees. The story doesn't say it exactly, but in, in our popular understanding of the story of the two men, we have deduced correctly that, in fact, the rock is Jesus. This is tapping into a um, strong vein of theology running throughout Old and New Testament um, that really begins back in Isaiah 28, where God says to Israel, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone for a sure foundation. The one who relies on it will never be stricken with panic. That's essentially a story about two builders, one of whom will end up having a cup of tea, the other who will end up watching everything be washed away. The New Testament clearly understands this promise to have been fulfilled in Jesus. Both Peter and Paul in in their letters will clearly identify Jesus as the rock. So 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to him, the living stone, i.e. the rock, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. This is where this story finally lands. This story of two builders that directs us to consider very carefully what we're basing our lives on is finally a story about God building a house, about him laying a sure foundation and raising a building on Jesus. The kingdom of God, then, is not our project at all. It's God's project. He's building something, not us. We participate in what he's doing through these verbs. Come, hear, be healed, and come, hear, and do. These outline the process of discipleship, just as the builders are engaged in the process of raising a house. These are Jesus' terms for following him. We come to him. If Jesus is not the foundation of your house, then don't bother even ordering those German appliances or thumbing through catalogues for expensive Italian tiles. The house will end in disaster. 
Jesus is the only building game in town worthy of the name. And all other grounds will turn to treacherous mud when it rains. We hear him. And once again, hearing is not a function of the ears or the brain in the Bible. Um, sure, they take it in. But it is the heart that hears in the Bible, that appraises what it hears, processes it, and prepares us to respond. A transformed heart, a healed heart, is what we need to hear correctly. And we do do what Jesus says. Obedience is part of the Christian life. That's why Jesus says in verse 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? This is the only point in the Sermon on the Plain where Jesus references himself at all, where he calls himself Lord. We're afraid of obedience because we tend to hear that word through the metaphor of slavery, of a master and a servant. But in fact, obedience is taught in the New Testament through the metaphor of sonship. In Galatians, Paul will characterize Christian obedience as the freedom that children experience, which is doing what pleases the Father, doing what simply expresses our family likeness. Now, it's true that Paul will call himself God's slave, but only because he chiefly understands himself to be God's son. If you know that you are God's child, then it really is no big deal to do work that looks like the work of a slave. It's not a worry. So the conclusion to the Sermon on the Plain does finally call us to obedience. And it does finally call us to the lordship of Jesus. But look at the Lord we have come to. There's a distinctive form of discipleship in Luke 6, which is based on Jesus' distinctive form of lordship. Remember, this is the Lord on his way to the cross. This is a Lord who will reveal himself as Lord only once he is the crucified Lord. This is a servant king, a Lord who becomes subservient to death so that we might reign with him in life. Such a Lord is worthy of our allegiance. So come. Such a Lord gives a life-giving, life-sustaining word that is wise and good, so listen. And such a Lord issues commands that keep us in the way of being children, bearing the image, living out the character of God, producing apples, if you want. So in the end, yes, there are only two types of people in this world. Those who have been transformed by Jesus and those who haven't. Hear then the word of the Lord.